It doesn't happen overnight. It's not a get-rich-quick scheme. It's a lot of consistent, daily, tiny, incremental steps towards that goal and not being distracted. Hello, hello. Welcome to the Five Talents Podcast. How to build wealth like the 1%. I'm your host, Abel Pacheco. I'm the principal of Five Talents Capital. We're a San Antonio, Texas real estate investment firm, and we're actively invested in 1,500 doors of commercial real estate worth $150 million, much of which is right here in San Antonio, Texas, the Alamo City, baby. I'm also a fund manager, a capital allocator, and a servant leader who learned how to invest like the 1%. And on the Five Talents podcast, I enjoy helping others learn and doing the same. So if you're seeking investment strategies to catapult your family wealth and generate passive income, even in today's volatile market, this show is for you. Because each week we're bringing you interviews with PE firms, investment advisors, financial planners, tax strategists, VC funds, and many others who are highly skilled in handling money, good stewards of capital, and individuals who advise the wealthiest 1% on what to do with their money. So each show, we're going to provide you insights and actionable steps that you can implement to become a better investor. You're always going to learn something that you can apply in your own investment journey on the Five Talents Podcast. We hope you enjoy the show. All right. Hello, hello. Yet again, we have another amazing guest. And when I tell you amazing, it's always a privilege and always appreciative just to get a little bit of time with Ms. Sandia Sesadri. She's been one of my good personal friends, a lot of time spent in mentorship groups and masterminds and just being around her. Every time I, I'm in her presence, like, oh, this, that was really good. That was really good. I'm, yeah. I'm very excited, personal level and also a business level. So Sandia, thank you so much for joining. How are you? Thank you so much, Abel. I'm doing great. It's such an honor to be back on your show. I've always been a great fan of all the things you do. So thank you for inviting me back. Thank you very much. Round two. If you haven't heard that there was a show, Sandia came earlier on our podcast. I think we're on episode like 270 or something now. And <laughs> she was like in our first 50 or 100 and she just really gave a lot of good information. Back then, we were talking about underwriting and numbers and stress testing and in financially engineering deals. And it was a really great conversation as I look back on it. So there's a lot of good nuggets. And the times have changed now. Now, we're really focused on a lot of assets, operations, asset management and KPIs and trying to dig into the deals and working with the property managers and making sure what we have is being run well. So that's always, I think it's going to be a good a great conversation. And before we dig into too much real estate, I really want to take a moment to introduce Sandia because if you don't know her, she's, uh, man, she's crushing it. She's the founder uh, of Engineered Capital and Ace Operators. There's about $140 million. So let me say that again, $140 million of assets that are under management. She's had a number of full cycle deals, and she's also a limited partner, passive investor, and even more deals, ton of them. And she's going to be a great resource to learn from. So we're happy to have her. But Sandia, in your own words, why don't you introduce yourself, who you are and what you do? And we'll start a great conversation here. 
I'm a Dallas-based apartment syndicator, moved here 33 years ago, straight from India. Like most engineers, Indian geeks, we got into technology. So I'm an engineer by profession. That's my first job. Got an MBA and got into the stock market. And now I'm in real estate. Got into straight into large multifamily just for the tax advantages. And because I didn't have a fix and flip and construction background to do single family. So went straight from zero to 86 doors as my first general partnership deal. Did some passive deals before that. And so now I'm focused strictly on multifamily in the Dallas Fort Worth, which is a great market, which I know very well, having been here for 33 years. From DFW time. Well, that's great. That's so awesome. And for those of us that don't know you, right? So if you're a if you're a Five Talents podcast listener and you just started listening, Sandia, I'd love to break in a little bit to your background because when somebody comes in new and they're into real estate and they're asking me, well, how do I get started? Do I do single family? Do I do multifamily? And then they hear somebody like your, yourself where you've had thousands of doors, hundreds, literally hundreds of millions of dollars of transactions. Sometimes people have a perceived notion of, man, I, I don't think I could be like that, or I don't think I could do those things. Or maybe that person had some advantage that I don't, or they, people start to, to say, I mm-hmm. I can't for whatever reason. And I think just hearing some of your background and your story would really help some people today that say, I can do it too. So maybe elaborate a little bit, like how you grew up and were you from a real estate family or from an entrepreneurship family or did, how did everything happen? Maybe just give us a little bit for the background. So like a lot of immigrants arrived with two suitcases in hand, got off a plane in Dallas. My parents made about $60 a month in income. And I wanted to live in the U.S. badly enough that I worked very hard to make the best grades I could to get that scholarship. Otherwise, there's no way my parents could have afforded it. So I started from scratch, got my degree, got a job right away, right off of school into a Fortune 500 company, learned a ton there. I did a lot of technical work at the beginning, then moved on to management roles and program management. My company was kind enough to send me back part-time to school to earn my MBA. That's where I got all my financial understanding, formed investor clubs with all my peers, et cetera, traded stocks, first with options because I didn't have much cash. But after that, I started buying my own stocks and really got into the stock market. So for about 25 years now, I've been trading stocks and I still do. It's where my liquidity comes from because, as you know, real estate is more of a long-term play and it's illiquid. But I got into real estate only because I was looking for a tax advantage. And every time I looked at single family rentals that a lot of my friends did, all of us have a realtor friend who tells you to try it out. But I didn't have that construction background. So I felt like I could be taken advantage of with a handy person. I never wanted to get that call of a leaky toilet on Thanksgiving Day kind of stuff. And when I looked at single family in the Dallas market, there wasn't a lot of appreciation. If you think of early 2000 kind of time frame, Single family pricing didn't really go up significantly. So your play was really on the cash flow every month. And the most I felt I could make was two or $300 a month. And one repair could completely negate that. So having understood that, I said, that's not something I want to do. I don't want to sign a mortgage, a recourse loan. So the only single family I've ever owned are the two homes that I've lived in. And huh. I attended a weekend seminar where they talked about large multifamily. The weekend seminar. Yeah. The weekend seminar. I've been to a number of these as well. Yep. <laughs> Absolutely. 
But I realized that there were a lot of ordinary people just like me. These were not super millionaires out there buying apartments, et cetera. They were all ordinary people like me. This what year was, was this? End of 2018. So almost five okay. years ago. Let me and pause you. Let me pause you a little bit because there's <laughs> even at this point, you've brought a lot of information that I think would help a lot of people, mm-hmm. right? Non-real estate folks, so people are trying to mm-hmm. learn a little bit more about how to get in. So if I heard this right, you started working and what you did was you started an investor club and this was to create liquidity so that you could invest more. And mm-hmm. in, initially that was in stock, stock trading mm-hmm. options. And you still do that today. Yep. And I'm imagining if you had to rewind, you didn't know anything about stocks before you started trading them. You had to learn something. So what year was that? When did you start the stock trading part of it? 90s. So the minute you get a W-2, you're automatically in the stock market, whether you realize it or not. Here's They're putting 401k. your money into a mutual fund with your 401k. Here's your 401k, yeah. That's right. So, but I got an MBA. And so a big piece of the MBA learning was also trading stocks, finance, accounting, marketing, all of yeah, that. But, and that's where we formed investor clubs with Mike Flassmith and friends. That's awesome. Okay, so so even here, when some people, <laughs> they ask, Hey, can you teach me some stuff about real estate? We had somebody offer, and, and I'm sure you have the same. Somebody reaches out to us and is like, hey, I'd love to work for you for free and be mentored and coached and blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, yeah, okay, great. Nice. Ha- happy to talk with you. But people believe you can cram or take 20 years of information into a series of small, you know, like teach me everything you know. I go, that's not going to happen that way. It's going to take a long time. You invested a lot of time in in yourself and your MBA, even from the financial knowledge way back then, right? So yep. it's maybe help somebody with this mindset that thinks, hey, it's going to happen overnight. It doesn't happen overnight. It's not a get-rich-quick scheme. It's a lot of consistent, daily, tiny, incremental steps towards that goal and not being distracted. If you just look at how much screen time you're spending every day and instead say, I'm going to put my phone away and I'm not even going to touch it until I finish my, let's say, workout for the morning, my top three things I must get done that day, or my 30 minutes of learning something new, whatever that is. Imagine if you played a new instrument for 30 minutes a day for the next 12 months, how good you would be at it at the end of 12 months. It's the same thing, 30 minutes a day, but in a structured way, say that these are all the unknowns I have and this is how I'm going to approach it. So let's say you want to approach multifamily. One thing that I started out with was the expertise in the market that was already built in because I lived in Dallas for 33 years, right? At that time, 30 years. So I already knew the market. So I didn't have to learn the market. I already knew everything about it. So what is your strength? Do you have a business accounting finance background? Maybe underwriting is a strength. If you have been an entrepreneur and worked in seals and have a lot of high net worth clients, legal, doctors, lawyers, uh, other professionals, you might have a high net worth clients in your network already. So then capital might be something that's your strength, right? So use what is already your strength. In my case, it was knowledge of the market and being local boots on the ground. So I partnered, I found partners who are out of state 
and wanted to get into this market. And they had the brains of running real estate and doing multifamily. They had already done a bunch of single family. They were getting into multifamily. They had done multifamily in other states, but they wanted to get into this Dallas market. So I was able to offer something of value to them. I could be their eyes, ears, and brawn on the ground doing the work while they were the intelligence, the brain, the direction. Because when you come across large syndications, it involves other people's money. You don't want to be making mistakes. If you are just using your own money to buy the single family down the street, even if you make mistakes, it's your money and that's maybe okay. But when it involves other people's money, you want to minimize those mistakes. Um, These are large sums of money that I could never pay back on my own. So it's important that you have mentors, coaching, and peers and partners who can complement your weaknesses. That's how I did my first deal. Love it. So even before we hit the real estate part, which is you invested the time, effort, and energy. There's a couple of things you you said here. And if anybody's taking notes, you know, grab a pen and piece of paper. And if you're running, when you get home, hit rewind, right? There's a small amount or there's increments with consistency that if you continue to do something every single day for 30 minutes, for two months, you're going to build a new muscle. You're going to stretch yourself to learn something new. You're going to develop more competence in an area of expertise, whatever it is that you're doing. And when you have more competence to something, you have more confidence. When you have more confidence, you're going to in turn want to do it more and you get excited and do it more often. And then that's how Mm -hmm. the expertise gets built up. It's people say 10,000 hours of something, right? So is that 10,000 hours of internet time or is it 10,000 hours of watching TV or is it 10,000 hours of sports or whatever you want to do, 10,000 hours of, in Sandia's case, what I heard is, you know, building some wealth and learning how to invest and learning how to do that. So that that's awesome. And you mentioned, so l- let's fast forward a little bit to today, right? So you have a lot of things going on. And what I heard, what I believe I heard right was after this initial learning or understanding of multifamily, you were in this market, you'd lived there, you had expertise and experience on it. And so others, they brought their experience and you started teaming up and partnering. But when you say experience in the market, I'm sure that's grown from 2018 to today. Can you describe what your knowledge of the market means? Like, what does that mean for somebody that's like, oh, well, I'm in a great market, I I think, and I, I know the area, but maybe describe what you mean by, hey, I have some expertise in the market. What does that mean? And so somebody can say, oh, I want to go do what Sandia is doing in their local market. So some of the fundamentals are you want to be in a landlord-friendly state and landlord-friendly market, which I happen to be in Dallas, meaning the laws are more in favor of the landlord rather than the tenant. So if some tenant doesn't pay their rent, just like you go dine at a restaurant and you don't pay the bill, well, there's a consequence to it. So I want to be in a state where there's a consequence if you don't pay your rent or you're not working with us on a payment plan, right? So I want to pick that. And Dallas is such a market, which is why I was able to just stay in local. I didn't have to go to a different market. The knowledge of the market is also about things like crime rate, good school systems, traffic patterns. Uh, Why is that a suitable area or not? Would you consider living there? 
So I know all my pockets of Dallas. So if somebody gives me an address like South Polk Street, as an example, that's a street very close to the Dallas Zoo. I would just say, no way. I don't even have to think about it, right? Yeah, so yeah, I have no idea. I my deals. Exactly, right? Like, so that's months. some of the, yeah, the knowledge I have about the market, that's an example of you just subliminally absorb all this information from having lived in a place and driven all around town for 30 plus years in the same area. You just know these things, right? So I know where the good schools are. I know where I would want to live. I know where the crime is low. I know who are, where the nice suburbs are. I also know the path of progress. Like if you look at all the new fabs coming into play, uh, manufacturing facilities because of the CHIP Act that happened to bring more chip manufacturing into the U.S. A lot of it is happening the north side of Dallas towards Sherman. I know that Irving is a fantastic location. It's 10 minutes from the DFW airport. So there's a lot of economic drivers of things you know about your local area without even having to think about it. So the minute somebody gives me an address and tells me, hey, I'm looking at this deal in Dallas, I already know it. But my four plus years now of doing multifamily in Dallas, I also know about 500 plus other owners, operators, syndicators in the Dallas area who own properties. So the minute I see a property and say it's in a great location, I have my own knowledge of that property in terms of the price per door based on its vintage. I could literally call up a friend and say, hey, what rents are you charging for your two bedrooms? Is this reasonable? Like if I get a broker for Horma saying, oh, you can charge the moon for this property. I know more realistically what that number is. So that's, again, my micro hyper local focus knowledge that I have. So as soon as I know the whisper price, the type of vintage of the property, I could probably drive by it. I, I know all I need to know whether or not I'm going to deep dive into the numbers at all. Yeah. So that's my unfair advantage, if you will, of, as a local in the Dallas area. That's good. Yeah. And anybody else that's taking notes right on this is like, well, how do I go do that? A few years ago, maybe for me, it was, I didn't start as, as early as Sandia, but when I was in my maybe 2020, I started. So someone told me, hey, you know what you should do is map up the whole, whole San Antonio area, map, put on a map put it by zip code and start creating a little Excel drive with zip codes. And, and every time we had a deal and we'd underwrite it, we put it up by zip code and started naming them, blah, blah, blah. I realized that there was a number of deals that we were looking at. And if you start underwriting five or 10 or 15 or 20 or whatever, it starts to pile up. And if you have a local knowledge of zip code, the number of deals, you can also go map out and say, there's targets within my area, B or C class or 1990s, 1980, whatever criteria you want to use, a hundred door plus and whatever, and start to map it all up. And every time you talk to somebody, a broker, an investor, you get a deal pitched, you get whatever it is, you can save that information in that folder by that zip code. And over time, it doesn't, it's not a quick thing, but again, this is a long-term thing like Sandia mentioned. It's just over time, there starts to become a wealth of knowledge because someone has this deal and they go, oh, you know what? I looked at it, this deal three years ago, what was it selling for back then? What did it trade at? And you start to get some of those cycles. And if you're in it long-term, it's not going to be a short-term thing, but for the long-term, like Sandia said, hey, for 33 years, she's been there. So She's seen the growth. She's seen the spots. She's seen everything change. Now that she's really doing a lot and big things in this area, 
for the next three years, five years, 10 years, 20 years, it's going to continually add up for her. And that's awesome. Sandia, thank you very much for, thank for you. sharing. So on, on the note of like what you're doing now, I know you, you spent a lot of time gaining some really good underwriting knowledge. And again, go listen to our first conversation on that if, if you want to dig into that. But I was hoping, Sandia, you could share, you've built up a tremendous amount of expertise now on managing asset mm -hmm. management and working with the, the deal. So maybe at the start, you could just tell us what is asset management, assets under management? What is running mm -hmm. a property? Just high level, elaborate. Tell us what it is, and then we'll, we'll work our way down. So multifamily operations, is, I like to talk about it, which, you know, a lot of people talk about planning a wedding and a honeymoon, but they seldom talk about the marriage. This is the marriage. People celebrate the closing and acquisition of a deal. Well, this is where the operations begins. This is where the real work begins to deliver value, to make the place better for residents, but also return money to investors by executing the business plan. Because the only way you get investors coming back is by meeting or exceeding your projections. And that's what operations is about. You have to balance what the lender tells you to do because they're your boss. They own 70% of the property. You have to listen to your city inspectors. You have to make sure you're compliant with whatever your insurance company wants you to do so that the property is compliant. And then you worry about the property management level. You're managing a third-party property management company, or in some cases, you might be vertically integrated and have it all in-house. You want to make sure whatever is your business plan that you plan to execute for the property is something this property management company believes in, is fully on board with it, so they're ready to execute that plan. And that's what asset management is about, is a juggling act so that you can ultimately serve your customers, which are the residents of your property, without whom you wouldn't be in business, and your investors who trusted you with their hard-earned money. Yeah. So that's it in a nutshell. You balance all of these different priorities. Yeah. And there's there's a ton. <laughs> mm -hmm. So maybe I can share a few the mm -hmm. high level and mm -hmm. I'd love to hear your perspective as well because when you're when you have the bigger op opportunities, bigger deals, it's not just one door. It's nope. you know, many multiple. Mm -hmm. And then if there's a portfolio, there's a, a many multiple of but you have your property management plans, right? You have maintenance and repair. You have your tenant screening policies. You have leases. You're communicating with the, the community, your own community, your investor community. You've got the financial management. You've got, you mentioned a number of them, city, code, compliance, how to staff the building. There's so many things to look at, your insurance. And how do you, how do we, manage all of that? Like, how does that happen? So that you say, hey, you know what? I got a good grip around all of this. How does that work for you on your side? So what I used to do in my corporate world is project management, which at a high level is like a helicopter view of your project. Mm -hmm. And that's where you get your direction from your lender. Your loan agreement tells you certain metrics you must meet. So that is where the strategy comes from. Right. And then your insurance tells you things to comply with. And so does your inspection. So now you take all of these things that are must do's that are non-negotiable and you turn that into tactical actions for your property management team to implement at the property level. So anything that comes from a lender required inspection repair, anything coming from your city repairs, you do those first without question. 
you address those first. Then you look at serving all the work orders. So you might get a little extra personnel in charge on day one at your property just to get through those quickly and set the tones for the residents to say, look, we are really here to serve you, make this property better. Before you just start day one, I'm going to increase my rents by $100. Why? Just because you arrived? You know, so give them a reason why you want to increase their rents. And then when you go about executing a business plan, make sure your capital budget includes all of these extras that come from your lender. Your lender repair, required repairs may not be something you you don't have a list of day one when you take over. Might take you a couple of weeks to get that list. And then now you're on a deadline to get it completed. And that could be a parking lot repair that could be over 100K, right? So you want to make sure of that. You want to make sure that due diligence you did up front really looked closely at all the major repairs you might have to do in the property. What we call as deferred maintenance items that come up and you have a budget for that. Whether it's a roof, a foundation, leaks, and depending on the vintage of your property, that could be a very long list. So you want to address those things first. Then the next step is, of course, anyone has KPIs they want to track, which is, you know, your total collections for the month. What is that target number? Uh-uh. That your occupancy support that. Yeah. Then- let me pause you for a minute. Hold on. Let me pause you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Five Talents Podcast with me, your host, Abel Pacheco. And since you're listening to the show right now, I wanted to break for a moment to tell you thank you so much for subscribing and following the show. I also want to give you access to our Simple Wealth Case Study for busy professionals that we explain how we invested in $150 million of commercial real estate to generate passive income. So I'm sharing with you how I personally build wealth like the 1% and explaining how you can create passive income in real estate without having to manage it yourself. So do yourself a favor, take a moment now and go to www.5talents.capital. That's the number five talents, T-A-L-E-N-T-S dot capital. And you can register, watch our video recorded case study, and we're going to give you access to our investment club as well. If you want to see like all of our next moves, every single investment move that we make, future investment opportunities, and even perhaps invest alongside us, go to our website now. We look forward to sharing more. You can register at www.5talents.capital. And we look forward to having you as part of the club. Because there's so much good stuff here, Sonny. I want yeah. to talk about KPIs. So we'll dive into that for sure. But even the first part of what Sandia mentioned, a lot of people don't really grasp that, mm-hmm. what we're talking about. And, and if you're trying to buy your deal for the first time and you're an active investor, so if you're listening, I know our community is probably a little bit of both. It's active investors that want to do what we're doing, Sunday, And then the other side is like, we have some passive investors that, follow and and looking for the next Mm -hmm. opportunity, looking for the next great deal, et cetera, right? But some things that Sandia mentioned is you've got these lender requirements that are based on your initial plan. And I think even that for both active or LPs, that is one thing to realize. When we went into the deal, we put a certain business plan together and that business plan incorporated how much capital improvements we're going to put, what exterior and interior renovation down to the unit type usually they require and how much 
new rent or premiums bumps, rent bumps, or we're going to get from this particular scope in this particular unit. And there's also all this legal stuff, which is like, oh, what's your debt service, debt service coverage ratio, which if you're on a bridge loan, we'll talk about this a little bit too, but when you're a bridge loan, you're like, you're not hitting 1.25 and whatever a loan to value agree to. So it's like, hey, I got to work within this range and got to try to get this goodness even on my original business plan. And and then all of a sudden this extra stuff, like Sunday, you said, let me get on the property and realize something else happened that wasn't in your plan. And you're like, ah, how do I work through it? So there's most people don't get that until you're like in, in the deal, right? So that's one part. And Sunday, before we move to the KPIs, I, I thought I'd share a nugget and maybe, maybe, I don't know if you have anything to elaborate on it, that there are things inside that loan agreement. So a lot of us, uh, a lot of us, and I, I don't know, I can't speak for everybody else, but for us, we've done a lot of bridge loans during this horrible possible time. Interest rates are going up like crazy, unprecedented increase. And so you've got these lender requirements. And one of the things that I've realized through this process is that a lot of lenders gave a lot of money out of a lot of deals in this particular piece. They are negotiable. <laughs> they mm-hmm. don't want to get stuck with a bunch of properties. They are working with people that are doing that. So if you're in a deal, whether you're an operator, a limited partner, uh, there's got to be good lender communication. Hey, this is the original plan. This is what I was doing. Here's how things went sideways. And what are we going to do about it? And working with the lender back and forth and trying to make good on this original plan. And that you know, there's a lot of that communication with the lender that's part of this asset management, part of the operations, bring your property manager to the asset manager, the lender. So maybe you can you know, share any insight you have in this area on your own stuff, Sandy, how are things going? So with bridge loans, which are floating rate loans that got hit because of the 11 continuous interest rate hikes, I guess there was a pause once and then another one. We have had 11, 11 interest rate hikes. And so for a lot of people, their monthly mortgage payment has more than doubled. And so your debt service coverage ratio, which is how much income do you have to pay the mortgage, right? That is your debt service coverage ratio. That is fallen below. In other words, even the income they produce in the property may not be enough to cover the mortgage. That's going to be a problem because then you're not meeting the lender requirements on your loan agreement. So you've got to negotiate that. You may have to put additional capital just to keep the deal afloat. So you're in a negative cash flow situation month over month. And so that's one of the things we like to dive into and see how can you increase your cash flow, decrease your expenses, increase your income. What can you do? What is that gap at a minimum to meet that lender requirement? So we dive a lot into those strategies and ACE operators, but the obvious ones are how do you increase your income in a way that residents are willing to pay for? So find out whether they like cable Wi-Fi. That's something very popular. Especially if you offer it at a better price than the local service provider, you can buy a bulk internet package, bring it to your property and offer it to all the residents. So almost everybody needs their Netflix, et cetera. So that's a good one. Another one that's really popular is having washer dryers installed in the units if you have the connections or install the connections and provide the units because laundry is part of everybody's budget. So rather than taking this basket of laundry over three buildings away to some laundry center in your property in the summer of Texas or the winter of February, you can just do it in your unit. So 
find ways to add amenities and features in your property that residents want to pay for. Don't just say, I'm going to give you a stainless steel fridge and you got to pay me hundred more dollars because they will be reluctant. And especially now we're in October and during this conversation. So we're what we call getting into the holiday or off peak season. You don't want to have a large number of move outs because your rents are unreasonable. So you want to definitely keep a pulse on the market. It's just like you in a job interview. You want to be able to explain how you differentiate and why they should hire you as the candidate over the other thousand. It's the same way with picking your subject property. How is your subject property better, different in its amenities and its service and everything else with respect to the competitive properties around you so that you can price accordingly to be fair and keep residents and focus more on retention, meaning renewals. So we compensate our property management based on renewals rather than new leases so that we keep more heads in beds. We don't want good tenants to leave. So what does it take? What's a fair price? It, we're not going to go quibble over the last $25 because 25 times even 12 is only $300 versus yeah. the cost of a unit turn. The number of days the unit stays vacant, the amount of money you have to spend to rehab it doesn't make sense. So all of our compensation packages for the entire on-site staff. Because you have to do your work orders nicely. So your maintenance people have to be good to the residents for keeping that customer satisfaction rating and retention. So our package, our compensation package goes to leasing manager, property manager, and maintenance staff. So they're all in it to provide the best service possible. Like we want to be like the Neiman Marcus and Nordstrom of customer service, even if we are just a Walmart down the street. So that's our philosophy in taking care of residents. Yeah. And therefore, you have retention, so better numbers, and then that translates back to investors. Yeah, absolutely. I'll add a couple things on here to know some of the items that Sandy is talking about. How do you get competitive in one of our property managers, for example, versus another one? So my wife's really been, I'll say this good note about her. So my wife, Leslie has really been diving into asset management, property management, taking her certified apartment manager courses and digging in, really learning like a property manager and then getting all over the property, auditing every part of this process, right? And so we found as you're doing that, oh, I asked our property manager, how do you get competitive rates? How are you pulling this information? So Sandia said, well, how do I get that competitive information to make sure you're charging enough and make sure that people are willing to pay? Well, there's a there's CoStar reports, there's some data online, there's some apartments.com, you can go there. Or one property manager versus the other says, you know what, I'm going to go do secret shop. I'm going to go in there and look at the property. I'm going to dig in and find out what people are willing to pay for. And you have that information, but you really have to get a lot more hands-on you, my wife is describing this time as uh, as wartime right now. It's like, hey, it's not the time where operators can just trust a property manager. We actually had to secret shop a couple of our teams and had to remove a few people recently because it just didn't turn out what we wanted. That experience, that customer service experience that Sandy is mentioning is like, it wasn't happening. So those are the things you have to get actively engaged on and you have to dig a little bit deeper into the property to provide the best possible asset management. Make sure you're being a good steward of, of everyone's capital. So yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. 
Like One easy sure. way to do it, we have a secret shopper list that we do on a quarterly basis. And you could have your VA do it over the phone. You could also visit the website, et cetera. And then we give a property manager one property on this side of town to go secret shop the other and vice versa. <laughs> and so that makes it yeah, interesting. Check that out. Or wow. former property managers because they really know the questions to ask. But the other thing you want is when you provide your VA with this checklist, you want to give your VA the feedback form to fill out. Like, was the call answered? What time did you call? How quickly did they get back to you if they didn't answer the call? How was their enthusiasm? Did they promote your property and its best features correctly? Were they able to explain the differences between the units for the differences in the rent, et cetera? So these are some of the questions in that form. And the best part is once you compile this data, you definitely want to do it anytime you make a change to your rent schedule or amenity features, right? If you're adding cable Wi-Fi, you want to make sure you secret shop to make sure they're correctly showing that. And another thing that yeah. we do is we make sure we stagger all the new leases and renewals so that you don't have a bunch of units all having expired leases expiring at the same time. Because one, you don't want to have a bunch of vacant units. And you don't want to have a bunch of turns all coming at once when you won't be able to turn them as efficiently. So you want to stagger your leases. You don't want to have many leases coming off in December at all. So make them eight-month leases, nine-month leases, 13-month leases, et cetera, so that you don't have all of that happening. But that's, again, a tactical tip for asset management. Mm -hmm. But again, at the high level, your steering and your direction comes from your lender, your inspector, your insurance company, and then what the market will pay for. In those yeah. things. Yeah, all good, all good insight. I really like the let's secret shop each other. Out. Mm -hmm. One of the unfortunate parts of not finding the best possible team. And I'm like, oh, property management and I need to change. When we were interviewing other property managers, what we end up doing is getting a little bit of information as they secret shop us and maybe look at our budget and look at our opportunities. They always recommend a few other things that Sandia mm -hmm. said, well, what about cable and Wi Fi? What about this package? And I was like, yeah, that's a good idea. And whether or not we went with them, we had more ideas. Reminds me of my professional career when I was interviewing out. I had a mentor and a leader back then. He was like, well, you know what? Are, have you interviewed lately in the professional realm? And I worked at the same company for like 10 years in tech and I didn't talk to any recruiters, but he shunned me on that. He was like, you should have been. Why? Because as you interview with other entities, other professions, you can ask them what's going on in their world. You can get that competitive information. So I've since applied that a little bit to the property management side. It's like, well, how would you run our ship? How would you steer it? And mm -hmm. you get some information. It really provides. Okay, hold on. Before we go, because I know we're running short on time. There's so many things, Sandy, that I wanted to hit. But before we do that, I want to hit KPIs real quick. But before you came on the show, and we really appreciate your time, I want to make sure that we give an open invitation. If you're looking for who are you hoping to reach? And where should they go contact you so that our listener base, if they want to get in your world, they want to talk with you about investments, they want to do some, get some mentorship, whatever it is that, that you're doing, who do you want to reach and where should they go contact you? I post a lot on LinkedIn. That's an easy platform to find me. I help limited partners through potential multifamily value-add opportunities in the Dallas area through engineered capital which is engineered-capital.com. I hold a monthly webinar, acepassive.com, to help passive investors become more sophisticated and smart about uh, their investments. 
I also have something to help operators, especially if they have floating rate bridge loans and want to be more efficient in their operations. I started a small inner circle group five months ago. It's called aceoperators.com. There's a Google form they can fill out, interest form, and then we'll have a call to see if it's a good match. So passive investors, acepassive.com, operators, aceoperators.com. All right. So we got that. So go reach out to Sundia. Let her know you heard our conversation on the Five Talents podcast, and I would be blessed and humbled by it if you did. So thank you. KPIs and anything else you want to talk about. So KPIs is a big, just it's a big one. It's a long one. Maybe just give us a high couple of high level nuggets, like maybe not necessarily what you're looking at or what, whatever you'd like to talk about on the subject of the most important data points to to watch. Always focus on your top line revenue collections. What is that target? And make sure your on-site knows it. It's got to be 200K a month, 100K a month, whatever that number is. That should be on everybody's mind. They should be knocking doors. They should be going and issuing those notices that by the fifth of the month, nobody has paid their rent. They need to have those notices on the door, et cetera. Focus on collections. Next is your operating expenses. Go through every line item in your financial report. Look at what we call a variance report, your budget versus actual. And look at all the columns in red where it's not meeting budget and see why. Look into your contracts. Sometimes you get all these contracts that you either assume or you have for landscaping, pool, whatever it is, and you have the same company for a long time. They just get a little lazy or they start charging higher prices. Get competitive bids on all your contracts. So your operational expenses. Because your collections minus operating expenses is your net operating income a very crucial number with which the value of your property is determined. And that's what your lender looks at to see if it's enough to cover your mortgage payment. After that, you want to have a budget for your capital expenses and you want to stay well within that budget. Don't spend much of it at all at the beginning because you don't know what storm could hit your property, what could happen for which you might need that capital. So always stay as liquid as you can and stay cash rich. Beyond that, you've got occupancy, delinquency, and in occupancy, you want your occupancy to be at that 90% plus that your lender requires. Make sure you're not paying for unnecessary marketing and websites where you're not getting the leads that you need. Check where the leads are coming from. There's free places like Facebook Marketplace, etc. Social media is really popular for getting people in and it really is free. So don't be out there paying for expensive marketing websites if that's not where your leads are coming from. Use resident referral programs and incentivize your on-site staff with numbers to get your occupancy up because you're now getting into winter, especially you want more heads and beds. But those would be the most important numbers I would watch for at a high level. All right. I like the total income goal. Everyone knows what it is. Everyone's driving towards it. And that yep. total income goal, it's essentially a roll-up of a lot of things that Sandia said. It is your occupancy. It is making sure that our rent's collected. It's making mm -hmm. sure that our delinquency is low. It's it, it also brings into the play like how many are we doing incentives or concessions mm -hmm. to give away? And it it's a roll up of all that, which essentially how much hit the bank account. Mm -hmm. And everyone knowing that goal, the top line does wonders if everybody's driving towards that line. So I like that. On the expenses side, the making sure we're keeping things in line. How often are you like, like a contract renewals, right? Landscaping, pool maintenance, the, these big ones, pest control. 
how often are you like having people go ch check those out to say if, too much of it? And now you're like, you're wasting people's cycles, but not enough. You're being overcharged somewhere. How do you keep up with that? Is that minimum once a year? Yeah. But you also want to look at those contracts. If you only are required to provide a 30-day notice, are they competitive in their pricing? But also, yeah. because I live so close to my properties, I visit them often. So yeah. does the landscape look nice and maintain? Am I happy with the quality of the works? Am I getting a lot of complaints about pest control? So if every Monday pest control is supposed to show up, then when I visit my property, I look at the pest control log to see how detailed is that report. Have they actually reported violations, problems, et cetera? Or is pest control becoming a reason that people are complaining about, right? So first is quality of service, but the second is pricing itself. And as you acquire more properties, right? At the beginning, I only had one property. Now I have five properties. So I have economies of scale. So I can go back to my vendors and say, hey, I'll give you my business across all my five properties. Give me a more competitive bid. So that's another way. If you have an old large copy machine in the leasing office on a contract, do you really need it? Does it make sense yeah. to get a smaller printer for your leasing manager and your property manager? Yeah. So just things like a look at every line item in the expense and say, do I need this? Yeah. Marketing, I, a lot of times when you pay for a website, you're under contract with them for at least a year. So definitely look at the terms of that contract to see when you got to provide your cancellation notice. Do you really need it? And right before you provide that cancellation notice, make sure all the photos and everything is updated. So that it's like an evergreen landing page. But really look at if you don't have an occupancy problem, right? Like I have properties in areas like Carrollton, Irving, et cetera, which are great suburbs in Dallas. I've never had an occupancy problem. Do I really need to pay for that much of advertising? I'd rather have a resident referral program, pay my on-site staff a little bit more, okay, 50 bucks per lease or something like that as an incentive if occupancy drops somewhere. But otherwise, I don't need to pay for those websites. So really look at what is your biggest challenge at the property and your dollars are spent on what matters most and what's going to help that the most. Very good. Ms. Alia, thank you very much. I know we've gone a little over on time and I really appreciate you spending a little extra with us. Is there anything else that we didn't get to talk about, something you were hoping I asked about, or just some last nuggets of wisdom that you want to share? Whatever it is that you want to do in real estate, whether that's becoming a passive investor, taking that first step towards active investor, give yourself a deadline and have a structured approach to it. These are the 10 things I don't know. I'm going to learn them in the next 30 days. These are my resources, et cetera. Because if you don't put deadlines and block time in your calendar, it won't happen. You will drift. A year from today, you'll be in the same place. It's like, oh, I really wanted to learn how to play a drum set. Well, what action have you taken on it? Have you signed up for lessons? Have you acquired a drum set? What are you committing to? Have you blocked time to do it? It's the same thing. Yeah, yeah. That's awesome. Well, there you go. Get it on. I love it. Put it together. These are the items you don't know. Set a deadline, drive towards it, go learn what you need to go and be forgiving on yourself in the right areas. You're not going to learn everything you possibly need to know in an unrealistic time frame. At the same time, put enough pressure on yourself. If it's realistic and other people have done it, what other people can do, you can as well. And so I believe that and uh, you guys can go achieve it. So I am on our side, wrapping up, anybody that wants to go hit us right now, reach out to us, talk about some deals. Happy to have you, uh, five talents dot capital. If you, from this show, if anybody messages me asset management and KPIs, and you, if you go ping us, I'll send you a list of 
asset management goodness, as well as a list of KPIs that we manage and, and monitor on our property. So happy to share that. Just ping me, able at 5tcre.com. If you go hit our website, 5talents.capital, and just put in there asset management and KPIs, I'll send you a list. And really appreciate it. Sandia, thank you very much for everything that you're providing. So thanks a lot. Thank you so much. Love your show. Appreciate right. it. Thank you so much for coming back again. We appreciate it. Hopefully in another year, six months or a year, we'll have a, a third go. So thank mm-hmm. you very much. And all the listeners support, appreciate your time, effort, and energy for listening and keep subscribing. And thank you for sharing the show as well. Talk to you guys soon. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Five Talents Podcast with myself, your host, Abel Pacheco. We really appreciate you liking, following, subscribing, and leaving all the written reviews for the Five Talents Podcast. Each week, we're going to continue to bring interviews with private equity folks, VCs, advisors, financial planners, strategists, tax strategists, and other stewards of capital, many of which advise the wealthiest 1% on what to do with their money. So we appreciate you joining. Also, if you want to be notified of monthly future events we're hosting or attending, and if you want exclusive access to the same investment opportunities that have largely been reserved for the wealthiest 1%, many of which you've rarely ever heard about, go now to our website, watch our wealth building case study, and register to be added to our investment club. We're going to send you future opportunities and you'll be able to watch all the moves that we made firsthand. Your investment journey is waiting for you to take the next step. So what is the next step? Go to www.thenumber5talents.capital. That's 5talents.capital and register today. Thank you again. We can't wait to bring you the next show. And thank you for liking and subscribing.